This podcast is brought to you by SMA, where capabilities extend beyond the manufacture of intelligent inverters to the expert care and maintenance of PV equipment. With services such as grid emulation, commissioning, extended warranty options, and scalable plant-wide O&M, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. Find out more at sma-america.com. For the week of November 6th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Thanks for being here. I am Stephen Lacey, your host and a senior editor with Green Tech Media. This week, there's been a monumental political shift in America. While other pundits try to figure out what Tuesday's elections mean for health care, immigration, and the broader economy, we'll hone in on what it means for energy and climate policy. Then we'll settle into California, where the state is ending its wildly successful solar initiative and beginning a groundbreaking storage program. And at the end of the show, we will tell you something you do not know, or attempt to. With me, every step of the way, are my two co-hosts. Back in New York, actually no, in San Francisco this week, back from a trip in Kenya to visit his wife, just in time to vote, it is Jigger Shah. He is the founder of Sun Edison, the author of the book that you might have heard of, Creating Climate Wealth, and he is actually in a Starbucks in San Francisco because apparently Starbucks has better Wi-Fi than his office. Jigger, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. And the interesting thing about the Wi-Fi is that usually it's AT&T at Starbucks, but in this one, it's Google Starbucks. Really? I didn't know that they had a relationship. I didn't either. We, this must be a beta site. <laughs> it would be there in San Francisco. Up to her neck in political analysis, here with me in D.C., not in a Starbucks, is Catherine Hamilton. She is a partner with the policy firm 38 North Solutions and is probably the most in tune with uh, the energy implications of races around the country than anyone I know. Catherine, how are you? I'm great. We finally got one of our business partners back from the big race in Colorado, and uh, so I got a pretty good data dump from him. Excellent. Are you been, you've been pretty busy this week? Yeah. I mean, I was in D.C., so I wasn't working any specific races this year. Um, just you know, voted with everybody else. We have a lot of ground to cover this week, so we should just start covering it. Um, I want to divide this section into three mini-segments. First, we'll look at the national level. Then we'll take it down to the states. And at the end, we'll go ultra-local and discuss some regulatory commissions. So let's talk Congress. During her campaign in Iowa, newly elected Republican Senate candidate Joni Ernst promoted her experience castrating hogs saying on the stump that the GOP was going to make Democrats squeal. And did they ever? As of today, Republicans have a bigger majority in the House and Senate than they've had since Truman was president. And with more races still being decided, the GOP could pick up more seats than they've had since the 1930s. That pits Congress squarely against the president on his energy and environmental agenda over the next couple of years, and indeed pits more states against him as well. So, Catherine, lots to cover here. The big question here, I guess, to start off is EPA. Um, you talk a lot about 111D on this podcast. What, what is the GOP's strategy on this going forward when they overtake the Senate officially? Are they going to try to attach riders to funding bills and strip EPA's authority uh, to execute greenhouse gas regulations? 
Yeah, you can bet they will do that on everything they possibly can, whether it's through budget reconciliation or any kind of funding bill. I can imagine them doing that. But I think there's a little bit bigger picture to look at. When you see uh, McConnell, who is now going to be the majority leader in the Senate, they they picked up seven seats so far, the Republicans. And um, so it's a clear majority. The House picked up uh, over 13. So they are in really good shape also for the Republicans. And McConnell, at least, when you look at him, he's kind of looking, from what we can tell, at the longer game. So yes, he's going to try to defund EPA. They're not going to be able to really, I mean, the president would veto that. So what about an appropriations bill that the president couldn't veto if it meant potentially shutting down the government? Yeah. So, yeah, they could try to shut down the government again. Absolutely. It didn't work very well for them last time. So I think that's that's really not something McConnell wants to do. And he's already said, I don't want to shut down the government. So I don't think that's where he is on this. I actually think they want to prove that they can govern, because if they look at 2016, it looks really bad for them in the Senate. It looks like it's going to flip right back. And McConnell wants to make sure that he can prove that they're not just naysayers. They were naysayers for a long time, but he actually has to show that he can get some things done. And so we feel like there are some things that are going to be moving. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to be good. And it means we're probably going to be in the defensive posture for a lot of the time on clean energy, because there are going to be some anti-clean energy things that come up for sure. But if you look at what McConnell might want to accomplish is um, tax reform. There is quite an appetite in the Senate, at least for tax reform. And the two leaders on Senate finance, um, Ron Wyden, who's now going to be ranking member and Orrin Hatch, um, who will be then the chair, they'll just flip places. They work pretty well together. I feel like their staffs work very well together. They, they're reasonable people. They, I think they can probably get a few things done. Um, potentially some technology neutral tax credits, you know, on tax reform, they'll probably try to work on the corporate tax rate. Um, They need to work on a few very, very, um, you know, streamlined provisions. For example, I think we could maybe get the storage investment tax credit in because storage is something that's really resource neutral. I think we could potentially get the MLP Parity Act in because that's something that, you know, really just levels the playing field for everybody. So I do think there's some things that you can get done in the context of tax reform. And then he, he wants to get some things done on trade. He wants to, you know, I could see some other things on energy getting done, like Keystone and LNG. Now, those aren't necessarily pros, but I think that there are some things they need to get done. There's also the transportation bill is going to be up in 2015. So transportation, um, you actually can get allocated funds. And so I I would see that as a potential area of opportunity. Um, Another area of opportunity would be energy efficiency, although it'll be at a much, you know, smaller level. Remember, Corey Gardner, who's now going to be from Colorado, was a big booster of energy efficiency when he was on the House side. So I can continue to see that as a big play. And then infrastructure. They talked a lot about infrastructure. And, um, you know, transmission is a big issue in some of these red states that have a lot of wind. And so I could see something like that uh, happening in the Senate. Yeah, Chad Borden Park had a call today, uh, this morning, with a bunch of D.C. insiders, people representing the wind, uh, the project development, and the solar community. And they were all pretty optimistic about getting tax credit extensions, either in the lame duck session or potentially something bigger as part of a tax reform package. And I'm just curious if you think um, some of these broader Republican initiatives like LNG exports, like Keystone, um, some of these fossil initiatives might actually open the door for more support from renewables 
because um, it kind of takes away some of the conflict that was there along partisan lines. So if the Republicans can get some of these initiatives through that they've been fighting for for many years, is there the potential for the clean tech industry to come in and say, well, let's, let's add these? Obviously, from a, cli- from a climate perspective, uh, people would argue that that's a terrible move. From a political shrewdness perspective, uh, perhaps a good move. Now, remember, for a lot of this last Congress, Harry Reid did not let anything go onto the floor if he thought there were going to be amendments. And he had these really strict rules about that. And that prevented the Republicans from adding a lot of things in. Now, some of those would have been poison pills and would have brought down what other legislation was. But this actually does, as you make the point, give them a chance to bring up things that they want. And if they allow the amendment process to be a little bit more open, then potentially there could be some interesting clean energy provisions put in there. I think the real um, wild card is the House, because what you've done is you've given um, a lot more seats to Tea Party folks who are going to be um, like really feeling pretty empowered. So I'm not sure how Boehner's going to manage them, and I'm not sure how he's going to be able to negotiate in the lame duck given this kind of newfound power. So I'm really keeping my fingers crossed crossed for the production tax credit being kept into the full expire act and for them just getting that done in the lame duck. I don't think we should take it for granted, though. Yeah, you know, I think Ben Castleman from 538 had this great tweet where he said, so voters want a higher minimum wage, legal pot, abortion access, and GOP representation. Okay, then. And he got <laughs> he got 16,500 retweets. I mean, it was the most retweeted thing. So I really think that's the summary of the election. And I think what that means to me is that this was a huge Republican wave, right? That it didn't matter what Tom Steyer did. It didn't matter what people did. The Republicans were going to win this wave. It was just too much momentum. And I think the only conclusion you can make from that is that the Democrats don't have a narrative. They just don't have a story. I mean, you can talk about income inequality. You can talk about this stuff, but it never really resonated with the American public. And I think unless they get a narrative, they're going to be doing some of these backroom deals, which means that I think the XL pipeline is definitely done. I mean, I think we're definitely going to get it. It's going to get approved. And the question is, what do we negotiate for it? Yeah, I yeah. think it's filibuster proof. But I want to I need to push back on Jigger a little bit here. Could I push back on the oh, main Oh, please do. I was going to push narrative. back too. Yeah, okay. go ahead. So, I think um it doesn't mean that they want GOP representation. Here's what I think. And I'm not a political scientist, so I can't speak with total certainty, but Citizens United had a big impact. Negative ads favor Republicans. It's a pre- they suppress turnout and negativity favors the GOP absolutely. Unfortunately, what happened in this race is the Democratic Party decided they were going to be local. They were going to go local. They weren't going to talk about anything. They didn't groom the ground for the previous year or two to talk about all of the great things that they had done from a national perspective that had really helped the middle class, that had saved the economy, that allowed people to get health care, that really kind of built that groundwork. And so when they decided, okay, we're just going to talk local. We're not going to talk about Obama. We're going to talk about anything that's that we've done from the national level, all those things that we were able to get through. Then the GOP came in and they decided to use the national approach and just be anti-Obama. And at that point, the Democrats didn't have anything to combat it with. They couldn't talk about Obama then. They couldn't, they didn't groom the field so that they could say, oh yeah, but look at all the things they had done. They basically had shut themselves out of that conversation. No, but we're saying exactly the same thing. Well, the the Democrats have no narrative. And so, I mean, to the extent that Alison Lundgren Grimes wouldn't even admit that she voted for President Obama, even though she was a delegate. That's embarrassing. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Next Gen, too, because I know my friend, uh, my business partner who was out in Colorado, 
said that you know they had a lot of people on the ground. Next Gen had funded a well, lot. Let's, of let's people. stop you there. Next yeah, Gen sorry. is, of course, Tom Steyer's group, his political action committee. He funneled tens of millions of dollars and raised raised millions of dollars to try to get candidates to talk about climate change on the stump and to support pro climate candidates. We've talked about him a number of times. So just wanted to give people the context. Yeah, so just his experience, and I don't know that this is how it was in every state, but there were a lot of very young people. He said, you know, like late teens, early 20s, said there were also a lot of kind of, as he called them, kind of sketchy people that had been hired. Now, I understand there are a lot of people who are out of work, so I don't know. What does that mean? I don't know, but he said there were people who didn't really, they they were not campaign professionals. They didn't know how to conduct a campaign. They were just bodies that they could get out to canvas. None of them could speak Spanish. So luckily, my business partners speak Spanish. And he was like, hey, can you send me into a Latino district? Because I want to be able to speak Spanish to these folks and try to get out the vote from the Latino community. He said he was like the only guy out there doing that. And so I think that um, this is a lesson that as they look at 2016, and this was a good, I guess, a practice time for them is to really try to hone, okay, how are we going to do this? Who are we going to hire? There are going to be a lot of really smart people who are out of jobs right now because there are members of Congress and senators lost. There are a lot of those great people you can bring in and say, all right, now we need to run something that's really intelligent and get the right people on the ground talking in the right way. All right. Let's break down Tom Steyer's approach here. So most of his approach was to buy ads and try to counter the Koch brothers and other large political action committees with negative ads, poking fun at candidates um, climate positions. And I think a lot of people after the fact, you know, this, the next gen group only won three of seven races that they were targeting heavily. And a lot of the after action review is that people felt like they didn't do enough grassroots organizing, that the climate community really does speak to younger voters, many of whom who do not come out to vote and they need that extra push. So the canvassing was crucial in these races. And it sounds like that didn't happen. So then, you know, I think there are these broader issues too, right? So Steyer came in thinking that climate was going to influence the election. I agree with what he's doing in theory. I mean, I believe that someone needs to come in with some influence and convince these candidates to talk about climate change. But it's pretty clear that climate and energy issues were pretty far down on people's list of priorities, or at least climate issues. If you look at the exit polls, this election was like, all about people not being happy with Obama. It was all about pessimism around the economy. It was about independence moving slightly to the right. That was a big shift. And climate really wasn't it. So looking back, it's always easy to look back. I think we'll find that spending money on climate ads exclusively probably wasn't... uh, the right approach. And it's just what Jigger said, like the GOP determined what that narrative was. They decided the narrative was going to be anti-Obama and the Democrats didn't do anything to combat that because they didn't want to have to talk about him. Well, well, then they didn't have anything to talk about. Well, I think, Stephen, I think your analysis is good and obviously Catherine's is as well. But I honestly think most of this stuff is just BS. I mean, what you do know, you mean? it's like saying that the Koch brothers and Karl Rove with his, you know, packs in 2012 were colossal failures. Okay, maybe they were. But then you could say, oh, no, now they're like colossal successes in 2014. Look, I mean, I think that this was a wave election and there was huge amount of like momentum behind the Republicans. I don't think that, you know, Karl Rove gets any credit for that or the Koch brothers get any credit for that. In the same way that I don't think Tom Steyer is going to get tons of credit for all the Democrats are going to get elected 
in 2016. Uh, I that's think- a really good point. I do agree with that. I actually think that that's what I wanted to respond to earlier. I think that this was also set up very nicely for Republicans. You had a number of vulnerable Democrats in red states that were up for re-election. And now in, in 2016, you have seven Republicans in blue states that are up for re-election. So uh, the, the same wave probably won't happen in 2016, but you do see some of the same forces against key Republicans. And we have to keep those factors in mind as well. Yeah, and so since the part- there's been such gridlock in D.C., there was no reason to think that the Democrats were going to be able to govern any better than the Republicans. So at least this way, now that they have a full House and Senate with Republicans, you will get to see, can they govern? What are they going to be able to get done? So, Catherine, I'd love to get your perspective on the fact that there's a lot of people who have basically badmouthed Obama because they said he's not a retail politician. He doesn't really care about other politicians. He didn't work hard enough on immigration reform, other stuff. He didn't invite people over for scotch enough over the White House. The White House pushes back and says, look, these guys are not interested in working with the president because they're all racist. And what I'm trying to figure out is, like, do you think that there's a deal? Now that the Republicans need to show how that they can govern all this other stuff, do you think there's a deal on corporate tax reform, on immigration, on anything in the next two years? Yeah, I think um, I've heard those same things too. And it's just not in the president's nature. He just doesn't – he isn't – he's great on the stump. He's great at campaigning for himself. But kind of the backroom negotiations uh, haven't really been very good. So I think he needs to sit down with – with Boehner and McConnell in a room with nobody else and say, all right, what can we get done and not have any press there and not have any other people there and just sit down and say, all right, let's figure out if there's anything we can work on. But the last time he did that, Eric Cantor cut him off at the knees, right? When he was trying to do the grand bargain. So like, is there any hope whatsoever that there's a, like a workable solution? The reason I ask is because I don't think solar and wind get done unless corporate tax reform gets done. Yeah, I yeah, and I don't know. You know, it's going to be really hard to get to a 25% corporate tax rate. That's going to be really difficult to get to. I don't know how they're going to be able to. I don't think they're going to do a big huge tax reform. I I just can't see how it can potentially be done even if everybody were on the same side. I don't see how you can do it. I think they'll be able to maybe do some smaller provisions. Um but uh, yeah, I have a hard time seeing a big grand bargain on that at all. All right, we could go on we could go on for a while on this. And I want to talk about one more national piece, and that is new Senate committee chairmanships. So we've got Jim Inhofe, the likely chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. He's replacing Barbara Boxer in California, who is a real environmental champion. Uh, of course, Jim Inhofe is a wild climate skeptic, and he's called the EPA the Gestapo. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska will be the chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. She is definitely a moderate, uh, well-respected, but still a skeptic on human causes, and I think symptomatic of the broader issue in Alaska, and that is people are feeling the impacts of climate change. They talk about it, but they don't want to admit that it's human-caused because of the reliance on extraction industries there for their tax base. Uh, But these are very meaningful positions, and... um, Of course, Mitch McConnell, Catherine, as you pointed out to me, will have the final say on what gets done within these committees and and what kind of legislation they consider. But these are pretty important uh, chair positions, and I'm wondering if you want to comment on either of these and how they might influence what goes through. 
particularly Jim Inhofe. Yeah, I mean, he might come up with some crazy stuff. I mean, mostly it's going to be about EPA and about defunding EPA. So I don't think that what he does necessarily changes that narrative. I mean, yeah, it's going to be much different than when Barbara Boxer was the chair or that he, she still is the chair. Technically. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, he has got a very different position. Um, I think with uh, on Senate Energy and Natural Resources, Murkowski and if Landrieu can hold on to her seat, they're just not that different on the way they operate and the, and kind of their values. So I feel like Murkowski and Landrieu, the the switch won't make a huge difference in that committee. Um, if Landrieu doesn't hold on, it's Maria Cantwell from Washington State. And, you know, she's much more pro clean tech and innovation. I still think that that committee will only pass kind of some small provisions that people can generally agree on. And I think on the finance side, finance committee Hatch and Wyden work really well together. So I really do think McConnell is going to control the agenda and he's going to decide what gets to the floor, whether it can have amendments, because he wants to see that in 2016 he's protected, that they can hold on to as much as they can, that they've shown that they can govern and that they have a shot at the presidential race, too. All right, let's go to the state level now where Republicans control 66 of 99 legislature chambers around the country, two-thirds of state legislature chambers around the country. They also represent roughly just under two-thirds of governors now. Um, Catherine, there were certainly some surprises. Uh, Any states you want to point to with some direct energy implications, either positive or negative for clean tech? Yeah, so one that was a big deal is LePage held out as the governor of Maine. And interestingly, even though Maine was hit by this huge storm, I mean, they had tons of outages. Mainers vote, they're like have the best turnout in the country by state, Mainers do. So um, they get out and vote. He won um, and he is really anti-clean energy. So that will have an effect. Yeah, Um, I think um, Baker, the new... um, Republican governor of Massachusetts. I mean, he's been very pro clean energy. I don't think anybody who gets elected in Massachusetts is going to be not too bad. I think yeah, Baker's um, been great. So yeah. he's going to replace outgoing Governor Deval Patrick, who, of yeah. course, has been one of the leading governors on this issue on clean tech and on climate change. And, you know, Baker is a real respected, moderate conservative. Yeah. He's been really clear about his support for efficiency, renewables and gas. He talks about climate change uh, on his website and on the stump. You know, he's probably he's not going to be like a Deval Patrick who made this a central pillar of his uh, of his governorship. But, you know, Massachusetts has a governor who's very well balanced on these issues. Yeah, I think absolutely true. And then um, Rahner from Illinois is very pro-innovation. So I feel like, I mean, a lot of this depends on the ecosystem that's in the state. So, you know, Illinois is a very, you know, clean tech, innovative state, has a lot of really good technology hubs. So does Massachusetts. Um now, interestingly, of course, Pennsylvania flipped, and now they're going to have a Democratic uh, governor, and I think that will be really interesting because Pennsylvania has been in need of some shift in that regard. And that's um, Tom I think, Wolf, who beat yeah. uh, Corbett, and 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 I mean, Wolf has he's diametrically opposed to Corbett. I mean, he supports expanding the renewable portfolio standard. He's talked about being cautious on oil and gas drilling and having um, you know being very careful about water and air emissions. I mean, he's very different from Corbett. I mean, just to be clear, I think that's by far the most important piece of state news in the country. Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania 
has so much renewable energy capacity. You've got PJM, you've got all this stuff. And the fact that Corbett was literally in the dark ages, the thing that people don't realize is that Corbett is the only Pennsylvania governor to ever lose re-election, ever. They have never had an incumbent lose re-election. That's how much people hated Corbett and how bad he was as a governor. And I think you're going to see Wolf dramatically change around. I think we're going to have a billion dollars in new renewables going into Pennsylvania over the next two years. But let's not forget that there's still a very heavy red Republican legislature there. Doesn't matter. All of this stuff has already been passed into law. This is all administrative public service commission work. We don't need anything from the Pennsylvania legislature. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's awesome, especially um, since that's going to be offset by the new Republican governor of Maryland, Hogan, whom I, I was pretty disappointed that they that he won because Maryland's come so far. Um, so it's good to have Pennsylvania kind of balance that. Yeah, that's um, that's a big piece of news, I think. So Larry Hogan is going to take the place of outgoing Governor Martin O'Malley. O'Malley, of course, like Deval Patrick in Massachusetts, was one of the best leaders in the country on climate and energy issues, really supportive of expanding the offshore wind industry, very forward thinking. And Hogan, who's going to be leading a state that's threatened by rising sea levels, is skeptical of human-caused climate change. He's skeptical of the state's renewable energy mandate. He doesn't like the regional greenhouse gas initiative. A lot of big questions in that state for sure. But the but the legislatures in Maryland completely controlled by the Democrats. And so I don't see him rolling back the RPS. I don't see him rolling back anything else. And, you know, I, th- I think Maryland's on track on the clean energy revolution. So I think we're OK there. But I think that um, I think the biggest piece of news is Pennsylvania. What will be really interesting is to see what happens in Arizona. Arizona Public Service was able to buy their two, you know, ACC commissioners. And I'm curious whether those ACC commissioners take their job seriously to represent the people of Arizona or whether they actually end up uh, doing exactly what APS wants. All right, that's a great transition. So let's get into some of the commission elections. And those are going to have a much deeper impact on the industry locally. So as Jigger said, in Arizona, you have two Republicans, Tom, uh, I think it's Forrestie, Forrest, Forrestie, apologies, for getting your name wrong, uh, Tom Forrestie and Doug Little, they were elected to the state's corporation commission, and uh, that was one watched very heavily by the solar industry. Do you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, I certainly don't think they're moderated at all, and I think the people that I've talked to in Arizona think that this is the worst possible outcome for us. But really? I, but I think – but this is the argument I was making last time is that it doesn't matter how bad you are. If you have nonstop complaints from old people, young people, middle class folks, et cetera, that are actually telling you that they want solar, I just can't see how they vote against the interests of the people of the state. And so that's why I think solar will do okay. But this is actually the test is I think I think solar really is bipartisan. I think solar really has huge support, particularly at the state level. And we'll see whether Arizona proves us right. Well, one thing I asked the um, consumer advocate there about was there was a recent um, settlement negotiated with APS and then with uh, it's going to extend to the other uh, utilities in Arizona as well on an integrated resource plan, which would look at renewables and storage um, as they consider having to add new peaking capacity. So um, he said that was safe. And so I was pretty, um, pretty happy about that, 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 that will, that should stick. So it didn't seem completely grim that they had uh, added from that point of view, from sort of the planning point of view. All right. So we've got a few other elections here, Montana, 
New Mexico, North Dakota, Louisiana. Um, I think a pretty even range of people who are skeptical of renewables and people who are supportive of them or the all of the above pr- approach. Um, any of these stand out for you guys? Uh, I mean, Louisiana certainly is a burgeoning solar market. So in the southeast, that, that could have quite an influence. Yeah, and they have a runoff. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Um, they've, I think Louisiana is definitely going to be shifting um, and toward uh, more of the Democrats, or not even just the Democrats, but pro-renewables. Because um, Forrest Bradley Wright was the head of the Alliance for Affordable Energy, and he's a Republican, and he's in a runoff now. If he can hold on, he's a Republican, but he's very, very pro-renewable. So that'll be really helpful. And then there are two other Democrats that'll be pro-renewables. On the um, the ones that you mentioned, Montana and the Dakotas, from what I could take of this, and I just need to give a shout out to Craig Cox, who's an amazing guy who's done a ton of analysis on the commissions and on all the elections and their impact on clean energy. So so he's definitely – it's worth looking at his website. It's Lightco, L-Y-G-H-T-O. Uh, I think it's .com. But he's – Craig helped me a lot to understand these. And basically Montana and the Dakotas seem very focused on transmission, which is actually good for renewables because their their job is to get wind out of the state. Wind states, and, exactly. Yeah. And so I feel like those aren't going to be all bad. And then in New Mexico, this was a big win because now it flipped. And so um, in New Mexico, they've got more Ds now that are um, that are in charge. So I, I could see some expansion of renewables in New Mexico. Let's get a word in about our sponsor here. To ensure maximum return on investment, it's important to have a watchful and proactive eye on your investment. With SMA's state-of-the-art solar monitoring center, experts are able to utilize advanced real-time monitoring capabilities to analyze performance, detect potential issues, and resolve matters remotely. If needed, SMA can also dispatch field service engineers to get your system back on track quickly. Maximize performance and minimize downtime with SMA service. Learn more at sma-america.com. If you were paying attention to solar seven years ago, you would have heard a lot about the California Solar Initiative, a plan to deploy thousands of megawatts of solar in the state by 2016. But you might not have heard much about the incentive program lately. That's because it is quietly ending the way it was supposed to with a smooth transition and virtually no pain. Over the past year, incentives have been exhausted, but installers in the state are still putting up solar in record numbers without any state money. They are, of course, still using net metering in the federal investment tax credit, but it is the perfect example of how an effective program should operate on the state level. Um, I wrote a story on this subject this week, and you can find that link to our podcast page, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. So I want to get your reaction, Jigger. Everyone I talked to for this story said the exact same thing you've been saying on this podcast and out in public. Volumetric reductions were the key to the success of California's solar incentive program. Dropping incentives as the volume of installations increased. Tell me what you think the legacy of the CSI is and how that volumetric reductions decision fits into it. Well, I think for a long time... um 
you know, people have been using the narrative of Germany as being the success story. And I think we now have an American version of that success story. And you see that with New York basically copying exactly the California Solar Initiative with Ontario, Canada apologizing for its messed up program because they followed Germany. And now they're looking to like copy the CSI. Same thing's true in India and other places. And so I think the legacy of California is they actually now have proven that their program is superior to the German feed-in tariff. I think what's remarkable here is that um, in the next few years, California is going to be installing two and a half gigawatts of residential commercial systems without any help from state incentives. And Germany's installations have fallen off. Uh, a, var- a variety of other European countries have fallen off. And so California, which started slow and decided to be very deliberative about its goals, is now going to emerge without any help have done it much cheaper and install two and a half gigawatts a year without any state help. Uh, I think that's I mean, pretty be, remarkable. To be clear, it's 97% cheaper. 97%? Right? Where, where are those numbers right. coming from, by the, the way? German, the German feed-in tariff law took $100 billion to achieve the same level of, you know, like getting the industry off subsidies as California spent $3 billion total. Right. So just, so just to compare the two, both had the same goal. Get the solar industry on its own two feet without any state incentives. Germany cost $100 billion, California $3 billion. Now, now, that's a really good point. But this is all very iterative. So in 2010, Germany ramped up. Chinese manufacturers responded. And because of high global demand driven primarily by Germany, manufacturers exploded. We saw downward pressure on pricing, and that helped installers in the U.S. So because of Germany expanding and because of Chinese manufacturers expanding, you had this downward, uh, this downwind effect in California that greatly helped installers there uh, uh, in terms of pricing. So obviously the three are all linked here, and you can't – Right, but we predicted that, right? When Chris O'Brien – Julie Blunden, myself, Jan McFarlane actually put the CSI program in place. We predicted that because we all knew what the cost of solar was. The only reason solar was super expensive in 07, 08 is because silicon prices were short. We knew that silicon prices were going to fall in 2009, and so we back-end loaded the CSI program. And you see that throughout the United States. We back-end loaded all of the solar policies in the U.S., where Germany made the mistake of front-end loading it. But there is no data whatsoever to support that the fact that Germany decided to build 7 gigawatts of solar in one year that the cost of solar actually came down faster because of that. That's just simply not true. 70 cents a watt instead of a dollar a watt because of Germany, but there's no point of fact whatsoever to that theory, and people should stop repeating it. Why did Asian manufacturers scale up in tandem? They didn't do it because polysilicon prices dropped. That wasn't the only reason. They did it to match global demand. I don't understand how you can sit there and say that Germany had nothing to do with it. That doesn't compute. I didn't say Germany had nothing to do with it. What I'm saying is that Germany being at 7 gigawatts versus 2 gigawatts was immaterial. The fact that the German people decided to waste that much money instead of actually just building 1 gigawatt or 2 gigawatts a year and instead going to 7 gigawatts 
didn't actually reduce solar prices faster. The reason the Chinese decided to manufacture solar is they were third in line. Remember, the Japanese bought manufacturing market share between 2000 and 2004. Then the Germans were like, we want in on this action. They provided 50% manufacturing subsidies and got number one market share lead from 2004 to 2007. And then China said, well, we're supposed to be the manufacturing king. So they decided to subsidize their industry from 2007 and beyond and took it over. But it wasn't like, you know, the, the Chinese were like, oh, it's because of the German, you know, industrial complex that we're going to put plants up. That's ridiculous and not true. Really? So it was the structure of the program, the way the program was was set up in California that really allowed for solar to become, you know, have grid parity and which is why it's working in other states as well. I mean, I think other states are starting to mimic that program uh, to great success. And it's really smart, too, right? Because the thing about the California program was when in, in 2008, when module prices spiked up because of the Spanish program being overheated, the California program said, look, we're getting out of this business. We are not going to oversubsidize solar. And so the California market actually started to wane, and there were no really new projects that were originated from March of 08 till the end of 2008, which is exactly what was supposed to happen. We were saying as regulators and as, as, as stewards of public dollars, we are not going to chase Spain down an abyss. When the market rationalizes, we are going to allow the market to grow again, which is exactly what happened. When module prices went down at the end of 08, early 09, the California program said, great, now you guys are being more reasonable. We'll provide subsidies again. So, Jigger, I have a question for you. Do you think um, now that this this program is sort of phasing out and we are looking at sort of the net metering successor tariff structure, probably the earliest at the end of 2015, the ITC dropping in 2000 after 2016 from 30 to 10 percent. Do you think the solar industry with those next two years uh, to work is going to continue to be as successful? Right. Exactly. Yes. And the reason for that is because in California, the banks are all pro-solar now. Your local community bank, your regional bank, Wells Fargo, the Union Bank of California, all of them are now super educated on solar. They know how to do credit checks through Kilowatt Financial and some of these other companies. And so what you're seeing in the next two years is a radical reduction in the interest rates being charged to solar, which is more than, more than going to offset the 30% tax credit. Well, let's talk about another program that's emerging in California uh, that really came to a head this week. So as the CSI comes to a close, California is trying to seed another market, uh, distributed storage. Last year, the state created this 1.3 gigawatt storage target for investor-owned utilities there. Um, And this week, PG&E and SCE announced hundreds of megawatts of contracts for both grid-facing systems and behind-the-meter systems as part of that target. Catherine, it begins... uh, this is huge. I know. This is really huge. This is so awesome. This this really made my week. So, uh, SoCaled was only required to to purchase fifty megawatts of storage for the LA basin, and they um, are going to purchase two hundred and sixty megawatts of storage. It's it's phenomenal. So, what this has done, and I'll I'll just list all the different technologies. It's six hundred. 260 megawatts of some of its behind-the-meter thermal storage, about 25 megawatts. There's behind-the-meter battery storage, 
Um, Advanced Microgrid Solutions and STEM were the big winners there. Ice Energy was the thermal storage winner. And then AES got 100 megawatts of grid scale, you know, in front of the meter battery storage, which is a huge, huge deal. And in in addition to that, there were 44 megawatts of solar behind the meter um, approved, um, 75 megawatts of demand response, 120 megawatts of efficiency, a tiny peaker plant, like 98 megawatts of peaking capacity from a gas-fired plant. And then there was some baseload combined cycle gas that was also approved. But what this shows is that energy storage is now considered a legitimate resource by these utilities as any other resource and that all of these different resources combined can provide plenty of capacity that you don't need to build a lot of baseload or even peaker generation that if you can use all these different flexible resources and certainly storage is super flexible, um, then you're going to get what you need. And so it was a huge success story that we're able to say, well, they only had to do 50 megawatts and they're going to do 260. Yeah. So we don't know the, the, the details of the contracts yet, but we can assume that if it went from 50 megawatts to 260 megawatts, SCE is saying that these uh, technologies are cost competitive. And we've never seen such a big investment in customer-owned storage systems like this before, never in the history of storage. So so I do want to give a couple of shout-outs here. I mean, so Janice Lynn is a very good friend of mine who runs Stratagen Consulting and actually runs the Energy Storage Association of California. She had a huge role to play in this. I think AES you know, has mm-hmm. spent over four years trying to convince utilities around the world um, that this is true, that storage is actually a cheaper way to provide grid flexibility than natural gas peaking plants and other stuff. And they've won 100 megawatt mandate here, but then they also won 100 megawatts in the U.K., um, and that's four years of work. Um, also, Ice Energy. I mean, God knows I've been following those guys since 2007 when they first launched their pilot program with SCE. I mean, for them to finally get this kind of mandate, Jesus. Yeah. It, yeah, they were one of my portfolio companies when I worked for Good Energies ages ago. So, yeah, they've really been slogging out there. Yeah, and I totally agree. Janice Lynn has done a ton of work out there in AES, too. And they, you know, they've really started by getting a bill through the legislature that said you should consider it. And through that have slogged all along. And certainly, you know, from my perspective, um, helping on the on the kind of um, industry association from the national perspective, I've really been just kind of supporting them and filing whatever we could from a national perspective. Now, this is pretty new for these utilities, and they've admitted it publicly. They've talked about the requests as being extremely complicated. There are a lot of companies they haven't evaluated before. They're trying to figure out where they need storage most. And I'm just wondering if this broad range of contracts is due to the fact that they're just kind of throwing things out there and seeing what sticks or if if it's going to be this diverse. Do you get a sense for how complicated this is for utilities since they haven't done much of the DG storage? Well, I certainly think it's going to be complicated, mostly because you know, most of the utilities haven't even implemented all the data coming off the solar systems in their grid planning models. So I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do it for um, battery storage. But I, I know that STEM, which I've invested in the projects for STEM, um, who won uh, part of this award, uh, has done a bunch of pilots with the California ISO. Um, you know, and so, you know, I, I do think they've been practicing. But um, one question I had for you, Catherine, though, is, you know, like Sempra has decided to, to say, basically throw out all of this 
good news and say we still want to rate base $2 billion with the natural gas. Do you think there's a chance that the California Public Service Commission forces them to revisit that? Yeah, I think so. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on them uh, to try to relook at that. Because, you know, if, if SoCal Ed's doing it and is going to be a model out there, um, yeah, I think Semper's going to need to come along too. It is time to end the show, folks, and we will tell you something you do not know. And I'm going to go with uh, Jigger first on this one. So I just wanted to point out a couple things. One is that Brazil just finished their auction for solar. Um, the lowest cost unsubsidized that I've seen in the world. So $87 a megawatt hour is what solar um, cleared at. No subsidies, no nothing. Pretty impressive. I think South Africa's uh, fourth round bids that are coming out soon will be at $75 a megawatt hour, which is extraordinary. Um, and then the last thing is that um, the IEA just came out with numbers showing that China, Germany, the U.S. all used less coal than the previous year in 2014. You've got a nice song playing there behind you in, in Starbucks there. Yeah, the IEA analysis, quite interesting. Um, there are a number of factors that will play into peak coal there. Of course, you know, slowing GDP growth. You have to see a pretty market increase in renewables. I think they're looking at a peak around 2017. Is that right, Jigger? 2016. They 2016. think we're going to hit global peak coal in 2016. And I think it'll be faster because the only reason they're saying 2016 is because they think India is going to have a temporary spike under Modi for the next two years. And I don't think that's going to happen. All right, Catherine, on to you. Tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so you know I'm going to be walking out here. Uh, this week, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, fondly known as NERC, um, which which looks at and regulates reliability of utilities, um, issued a report um, discussing the potential reliability impacts of EPA's proposed clean power plan, the greenhouse gas rule. And um, it's pretty interesting to think about this juxtaposed with, um, because they're, you know, they're saying, you know, you have, we have to make sure that we have reliability in our system, even if we're reducing, uh, you know, carbon emitting resources, you have to have resource adequacy. And this whole thing we just got done talking about with SoCal Ed, that entire plan was about resource adequacy and reliability. So, you know, I, I foresee um, a lot of comments going into EPA, and certainly I'm helping to draft some of those about um, how technologies like energy storage can help provide reliability, even with uh, reducing greenhouse gases. Um, I want to respond in mind to something that you mentioned last week during our show, our discussion about millennials, Catherine. You cited a recent poll in Colorado, Iowa, New Hampshire, Florida, that 41% of millennial voters said that climate denial would disqualify a candidate, uh, even considering all their other positions. I thought that was a really powerful stat. But according to data from uh, exit polls, only 12% of eligible voters under age 30 actually voted in the election in, on Tuesday. So getting climate on the ballot seems to be about getting young people to the voting booth as much it is, as it is about discussing the issue in the first place. And I think that the next-gen folks can probably learn from that as well. Yeah, agree. All right, the show's over, folks, but uh, that doesn't mean the end of listening. You can find our 61 other back episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can also follow the personal conversation on Twitter. Catherine Jigger and I are very active there. Just search for us and we're easy to find. And so is our podcast account, The Energy Gang, very easy to, to find. Thank you kindly to our sponsor, SMA, for helping bring you this podcast. 
thank you to you for being the people we can bring it to. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, thanks for all your great political insight this week. Oh, sure. It was my pleasure. And Jigger, welcome back from your trip to Nairobi. Your wife's there for some time now, huh? Yeah, she's going to be there through March. But uh, no, it's always a pleasure. And we should definitely give our listeners the survey results next week. I will. They're very, very good. Most of you listen every week, and many of you listen more than to the show more than once. I don't know how you can listen to my voice over that many times, but hey. Hey, at one and a half speed, it's all the better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey with Green Tech Media, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here.